You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. What do we do after we pray? I can give you all kinds of ways to pray. If you want that, I'm happy to send that along. But what do we do after we pray? What do we do after we say the amen? Why we're waiting for God to answer that prayer. That's what this series is about. If you have any questions or answers to any questions posed, please feel free to send them. This is a dialogue. We're learning together. We're listening to God's word together. I need you as much as you need me. The Jesus in you is greater than the Jesus in me. And so send your questions, send your answers. We'd be happy to do that. But I think sometimes prayer is like when you pour your heart out to somebody and then you're waiting, and then those bubbles keep popping up. Do you know what I'm talking about? Does anybody else worry about this? You're like, what's happening? Sometimes it's on Facebook Messenger. Sometimes it's over text. Sometimes it's on, even on Twitter Messenger. It's like somebody's typing, and you're like, <gasps> and then you type something, and then maybe you delete it because you're like, well, I don't want to say anything before they say anything. So you pour your heart out, and you just see the bubbles. And I think sometimes that's how prayer can feel, at least to me, that you say the thing, and then you... And then you're in that, that bubble space. You're in that uh, don't know what to do next. And so we're just, that's what we're talking about. I hope you all can feel that. I think the bad news from today's passage, we start with the bad news so that we can receive the good news. The bad news from today's passage is this. We're going to get some spiritual uh, wrestling here. It's this. The devil can convince us he's one even when we do the right thing. And I don't know if that makes sense to you, but I've been chewing on that this week. That there's a place where, where you can be doing the right thing and st- still feel like you might lose or you will lose. And how I've been thinking about this is sometimes when I need to apologize, here's what happens. Like, reconciliation and forgiveness is always good. But sometimes in my head what happens is I go, maybe by apologizing I'm going to tell them that the thing that, I'm, that I need to apologize for was actually bigger than it was. Does this make sense? They, maybe they're, I'm, I'm thinking maybe they're sitting at home going, I don't even remember that James said that or did that. And then by me going, hey, I'm really sorry about that. Now they're going to be like, I didn't think it was a big deal, but now it feels like a big deal. And so trying to do the right thing, the devil tries to sneak in there. I don't even, does this make sense? Or other ways where you're just trying to do the right thing, but it, it feels like our spiritual enemy is going to get a hold of this in such a way to make it worse, to make it worse. This is, I think, the issue that Jesus has faced, and I've never really thought about the cross in this way. But we are going to look at a text in which part of it, Jesus is, it's the night before the cross. He's, he's anguished, he's praying, and we're going to look at that whole scene of him praying. But he says, Father, if it's your will, take this cup of suffering away from me. He was in anguish. This is a scene of spiritual battle. This is a scene of spiritual battle, and I read this quote from a scholar, and it, and it painted this whole picture for me uh, different. It's Joel B. Green. He says, this is the dilemma Jesus is in in this spiritual. If Jesus embraces the cup in obedience to the divine purpose, to God's will, he will also accept the fate willed for him by Satan. I hadn't thought about it like that. That part of the reason Jesus is in anguish is because by doing God's will, he's also doing Satan's will. And so there's, part, there, there's a, a dilemma, a stuckness, an awfulness. And so Jesus' prayer, the, 
do we have to do this? Do we have to go through this? Is this what we got to do? I've been there, even though I haven't been there. I haven't been there, but I've been there. And that's what I'm wondering about you. You feel like you've been there where maybe doing the right thing could actually make things worse. Maybe you have to be honest at work about something, right? Maybe you have to, uh, maybe someone's doing something abusive or harmful and you need to tell somebody about it. And that could just make your whole life worse, or maybe it's relationship. Maybe you need an end in, a, end in a, re, a relationship. Maybe it's a significant other. Maybe it's a boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's a friend who is harmful. Maybe so. And doing the right thing actually feels like it's going to make life worse. I feel that stuckness all the time. That tension between, I think I know the right thing to do, but I'm afraid it's going to make the situation worse. And so I, I just live in that bubble of prayer and waiting and wishing there was a third way. Here's our passage for today, two slides, this whole scene of Jesus wrestling before the cross. And there's a lot of really interesting details in here. It's a very uh, serious scene, and we're going to pull some points from it that are a little less serious. We just did 14 weeks of Genesis, and we did some heavy thinking, and so I'm going to try to keep it light for the next few weeks. This series leads up to October, the first Sunday in October, which is our big birthday celebration and the launch of new small groups. And so we're going to take it easy for the next few weeks as we push into that new season, that new fall season. So a serious scene with some less serious points. Hear now the good news of Jesus Christ from Luke 22, 39 through 42. It says, Jesus left Jerusalem and made his way to the Mount of Olives. If you love camping, this is Jesus camping. During high holy days, Passover, people would go into the city, but it was too busy. There was nowhere to stay, and so a lot of people went out to this Mount of Olives and camped. There's also a lot of end times significance about Jesus being here from Zechariah 14, but we don't have time to get into it today, but if you're interested in that, send the question. Or uh, we could talk about it later. But Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, as was his custom. He loved camping. I mean, in this time, there's probably a lot of just camping that was necessary. But um, he was camping. And the disciples followed him. And when he arrived, he said to them, Pray that you won't give in to temptation. There is a battle that the disciples are facing, even as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. They've had their last supper. He's broke the bread. He's given them the juice. It's wine, but he gave them the juice, and now they're getting ready to kind of keep doing their thing. Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. Kneeling in prayer isn't the common way to pray. The common way to pray at this time is like this. They call it the orans, eyes open even, standing. Kneeling prayer is serious anguish. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on here. So Jesus kneels down and he prays and he says, Father, if it's your will, take this cup of suffering away from me. However, not my will, but your will must be done. Then a heavenly angel appeared to him and strengthened him. He was in anguish and prayed even more earnestly. His sweat became like drops of blood falling on the ground. And when he got up from praying, he went to the disciples. And of course, he finds them asleep, overcome by Grief. He says to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray. And he says the same thing to them. So that you will not fall into temptation. That's spiritual wrestling. You know how we do here? 
Three points, something to know with our head, something to do with our heart and hands inside of us, our character, and something, something to do with our hands, something to do to get our faith out into the world. What does God want us to know from this passage? There's a million things, but what I'm taking away from this series is this. The king has a kingdom mission. The king has a kingdom w- mission. There is a will to be done, and it's oftentimes different than our own. Jesus teaches us to pray, and we pray this every Sunday here at the table. This is the Lord's Prayer. You've heard it. And what I would love for you to see is Jesus lives out what he taught us in this passage. He begins his prayer with Father, which had really never been done. Jesus really reveals to us a God who is Father. And he teaches us to have that same relationship in which he has And so he calls God Father, not only in this text, but in the text that we just read. Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus prays that twice, we'll get to that, on earth as in heaven. That is, that's the kingdom mission. That's the king's kingdom mission, to make heaven and earth alike. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus just did that. Remember, he broke it and gave it to them. Forgive us our sins. Remember, Jesus is about ready to do that on the cross, but also does that in the cup. This is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins as we forgive those of sins. Lead us not into temptation. Jesus twice tells them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And deliver us from evil. This is the spiritual battle that's going on with Jesus right now. For yours is the kingdom, the power forever. What Jesus teaches us and is seen in Jesus' prayer is that God is our Father. And that should be of extreme comfort. The first word of God to us is relationship, is closeness, is proximity, is love. But the balance to that is our father is the king. And like every good leader, there is a purpose, a plan, or a goal. God has a goal for what's going on in our world. God's mission is to make earth and heaven alike, to make all things new. We call this the new creation to see every human redeemed, reconciled, and restored to that original glory that we talked about in the Genesis series, chapter 1, made in the image of God to restore us into that. And God promises to do just that. God doesn't lose. This is where everything's going. You can get on board or off board, and those are your only options when it comes to all of this. But I also want to say in the midst of that, and we are talking about divine mysteries that can't be explained well, but we also 100% fully believe that God hears all of our prayers and wants us to pray and ask because God is our Father. First Peter tells us that God, we can cast our cares on God because God cares for us. The opening lines of 2 Corinthians are about God is the God of comfort. God wants us to pray. Jesus tells us to pray nonstop tells us to ask, pray. He gives, he gives parables about how we should keep knocking, how we, we should be so persistent in prayer. There is a thing where God wants us, wants us to be talking to him. Jesus models this for us, a deeply unapologetic prayer for self. He prays for the things that he wants, It's not just like, okay, your will is that new creation should come and make us all like Jesus and it's going to be good. Jesus goes, I also don't want to go to the cross. Like there is a a realness to his prayer. Do you see? 
And so there's an encouragement. Pray for the things that you want unapologetically. I mean, there are some things maybe I would discourage you from praying for. You're like, I would love for you to just plop down a new Tesla in my driveway. He might. I don't know. It can. God could do anything. But, you know, I would, there's other things we could be praying for. But be unapologetic about your prayers for yourself. Jesus does. Jesus knows the plan. He's already told them three times. I have to go to the cross. I have to die at the hands of the religious leaders and at the state. They will kill me. It is God's plan and it is for good. And on the night before, Jesus says, I don't really want to do it. I don't want to do it. By the way, if you have a question about this, about Jesus' will and why he is so, send it. We'll talk about it. But it's going to get real theological if you do. But I got answers for you. It reminds me of this. This was a psychology professor that I took a class from when I was in school. Her name's Dr. Ann Prouty. And essentially, uh, they told all the people who were becoming pastors, hey, we have this program to help you do marital and premarital counseling. It's called Prepare and Rich. By the way, if you want any marital or premarital counseling, I can do so from a spiritual perspective. Uh, I have a great tool that helps identify areas of growth, uh, areas of strength. Uh, and I learned it from a PhD, so... Uh, and I don't remember anything about the class except this, she said. And I've taken this away from this. It was a one-day seminar. Um, I had to do it to get into this program thing. And she looks at us and she says, the happiest people are those who can say what they want but don't have to get what they want. I never forget it. Because I think most of us fall in one of two camps, Right? I just have such a hard time of saying what I want. If you've ever tried to make me make a decision about anything, I can't do it. I just want you to do it because I'll be fine. I'll be fine. We just had a pastor's meeting here uh, last week, and they're like, James, where do you want to go for lunch? And I was like, oh, there's, there's 20 of us. I can't, make a I can't make a food decision for 20 people. Where do you guys want to go? And they're like, this is inefficient. Pick something. I have a hard time saying what I want. There's some people that have a hard time not getting what they want, right? The happiest people who can speak those unapologetic things of their selves, their needs, their wants, their desires, but they don't have to get it all the time. That has been so helpful for me as a goal for growth. How do I get to this place where I'm happy to say who I am and be seen for who I am, but also I don't have to get what I want. That one's easy for me. That one's easy for me. Jesus models this for us, that we can ask for what we want and need, but we also have to balance that knowing that God has a plan. God has a kingdom mission. And so that is where the, the difficulty of prayer is going to be. That's where that, that tension after amen is going to be of, uh, of trying to figure out what's God's plan. We've asked for the thing. Where is God in the midst of that? Second point, what does God want you to feel or experience inside of you? Because we believe the gospel, the good news, should be changing us and transforming us and conforming us to the image of Jesus. So what, is, what does God want to do inside of us? God is working while we're waiting. And this is really a stepping stone to another point. But this is what we should be experiencing after amen. Is this idea that... that that our prayer is not the end of our ask. That, that God has continued to work and is working. We see Jesus gets an answer to prayer in this passage. He prays 
Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. And it tells us, then a heavenly angel appeared to him and strengthened him to continue to pray. The answer to Jesus' prayer is not the cup removal. The answer to Jesus' prayer is divine strength to help him to continue to pray. God is working after the amen in Jesus' experience here, and we can be sure that God is doing so in ours. But also, since we believe that Jesus is divine, we have this other example of God working while we're praying. Jesus was working that whole time, heading towards the cross, and the disciples are sleeping, which we're going to get into in a, just asleep. Which, by the way, if you need to take a nap, that's all, that can be after amen. That's fine, too. I give you permission. But Jesus is working that whole time. And my question is, well, what are you working on, God? Like, is it that thing I asked you? Because I asked you, right? Like, that thing. Is that the thing you're working on? I need you to be working on that thing. It's important. Because sometimes prayer is important. Sometimes the things we pray for are life and death, disease, sickness, health, marriages, health. We need financial health. We feel like things are falling apart. We don't know what to do. That thing we prayed for is, what are you working on? It, we can say in our head, God is working while we wait, but on what? On what? And this is going to be a difficult lesson, but I think we know that the thing that God is working on while we wait is us. God is, is less concerned with answering your prayer as much as God is concerned with making you the person that God wants you to be. And waiting is one of the God's prime ways of preparing us for that purpose that we talked about, of God's kingdom mission. As a pastor, I never want to say that there's purpose behind the pain because I don't want to communicate that God is causing the pain because I don't know if I believe that. And we've talked about that last week with Joseph. We talk about it often. And there will be a lot of people who say, God caused the pain for these purposes. And I never want to be in a place to say that because I don't know if I read Scripture that way. I think we live in a broken world with broken people whom God allows us the freedom to be broken and to hurt each other. And a lot of the pain we experience is us in disobedience to God's plans and purposes. But we do know that there can be purpose from pain and that's the promise we learned about last week. That God is preparing us while we wait. And the painful thing we prayed about, God can use to make us the people that God wants us to be. This is Sarah Breedlove. Uh, she had a tragic life. Her parents were slaves. Her her siblings were slaves. She was the last sibling born on the other side of emancipation. So she is free. She's a free woman. Both of her parents pass away by the time she's seven. She ends up living with a brother-in-law who puts her to work essentially as a slave. It is so bad that she gets married at 14 and has a child. And then her first husband mysteriously dies. And I'm just speculating, but maybe she had, I don't know, maybe he wasn't a great guy, you know? It was mysterious, let's just say that. She gets married again, and that husband abandons her. She moves to St. Louis to be with some other brothers who have a barber shop. 
And she takes up uh, cleaning laundry to try to put her daughter through school. Uh, but what happens is, essentially, in, in this time in the 1880s, is that all the harsh chemicals from washing and uh, people don't know how to take care of hair well, she begins to go bald, and she's crushed by this. And she says, I was reading her story, she says, I was bent over a wash tub at about 35 years old, arms covered in suds, and she's like, I just remember praying, like, well, I can't do this forever. My back's not going to last long enough to be doing this as an old woman. I need someone to help me in life, a partner. Um, but now I'm having issues with my hair, and I don't know what to do. And so she goes on this journey. She says, just praying, praying, waiting, trying to figure this out. And she has a dream. And this is in her own words uh, of what happens. She said, uh, God answered my prayer. For one night I had a dream, and in that dream a big black man appeared to me and told me what to mix up for my hair. Some of the remedy was grown in Africa, but I sent for it, and I mixed it, and I put it on my scalp, and in a few weeks my hair was coming in faster than it had ever fallen out. And I tried it on my friends. It helped them. I made up my mind I'd begin to sell it. Now, this woman was a master salesperson, so, you know, I don't know how much of this is true, but in her experience, this was God's answer to her prayer. That she got this formula, and it worked. She became, so anyways, she started selling her stuff. She becomes the first self-made millionaires in America from this formula, from Washington to the top, right? And, and with all her money, she became very filled. She's planting churches. She's starting universities. She's building buildings for like YMCA. She becomes an incredible woman. Her name, she changes, she gets married again and changes her name to Madam C.J. Walker. And that's, that's the end of the story. She becomes successful. And I just was thinking about her story and the idea that there is purpose from pain. And that's how she would explain her story. That out of her pain, she prayed and she prayed and she waited and she waited. And she got a miraculous answer from a dream. Uh, but God used the pain to create purpose for her. And then she was able to use her resources to do lots and lots of good in the world. What is that purpose? We talked about that kingdom mission. But if I could say it again, if God's more concerned about who we're becoming than answering specific prayers. Uh, it's this. The purpose is to make us like Jesus. That's God's goal for us, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.10, put on the new nature, which is renewed in knowledge by conforming to the image of Jesus, the one who created it. That's God's purpose. That's how God uses that pain to create us again in the image of God, now revealed most clearly to us in the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the waiting, God is working. And God is preparing you for God's bigger purpose. So what do we do? What do we do with that? We've talked about what to experience here. We talked about the knowledge stuff, that God has a mission. What do we do with this? There's two things. That's not three points, James. That's four points, but bear with me. One is to pray persistently, which, James, you said after amen. You didn't say keep saying amen, but bear with me. We're here. We're already here. And align with God's why while we wait. First one, pray persistently. We're wrapping up. If you have questions, send them. 
in this story of Jesus, Jesus is mentioned as praying three times. But it's not just about Jesus going to cross. This is a teaching moment because Jesus tells his disciples twice to pray so that you won't fall into temptation. It's not just about Jesus going to the cross for us to take away our sins. That is also happening. But in this moment and in all things, because we are being conformed to the image of Jesus, Jesus is our example. And so we are encouraged like Jesus to continue to pray. The passage tells us that he was in anguish and prayed even more earnestly. That is the answer to Jesus' prayer. Divine help to pray more. That's the answer to his prayer. Which I do not want that to be the answer to my prayer. I want the answers to my, my prayer to be healing, right? To be forgiveness, for God not to hold the stuff against me that goes on in my heart, to make my bank account a little more cushioned, to make my marriage healthier, to make sure my kids are safe. And, and, and we see in this story, God goes, I'll help you pray harder. You're like, come on. But sometimes that's the answer, right? Pray persistently. If you've been around church a while, you've heard the acronym of PUSH. Pray until something happens. That really is an encouragement we have from Jesus. As cliche as it is, it's there in the text. To triumph in times of trial, tests, and temptation, Jesus tells us, we must pray persistently. I think Matt was talking about this in his prayer after worship. That sometimes when we come against trials and temptations and tests, we want to fall into the old coping habits that we have. Mine is 100% cereal and ice cream. Put my kids to bed, sit in a dark place, turn on some TV, veg out, and eat, eat delicious foods full of fats and sugars. I hear you laughing. I'm going to take that as an amen. But maybe something... <laughs> People use different things. It gets worse, right? Drugs and alcohol and sex and manipulating people and lying. There's ways in which we come up against trials, tests, and temptations and we fall. Jesus teaches us and models for us that praying persistently is the way that we overcome temptation. The disciples fail. Disciples fail here. But Luke lets them off the hook, which is why I think you can take naps. Because Luke is like, they didn't do it right but they were overcome by grief. And a good grief nap is always helpful. Luke lets them off the hook. They failed. But Jesus in this picture, he's the picture of triumph. This is, this is athletic prowess, overcoming spiritual enemies. That's what this picture is. Jesus is on his knees, which for us, right, is a picture of losing, of submission. But this is where Jesus wins. He's on his knees and the heavenly angel appeared to him and strengthened him, and he was anguished, and he prayed even more earnestly, and he's pictured as an athlete full of sweat dripping off of him, and he gets up from praying. This is, this is how we overcome trials and temptations, tests, trauma with a good counselor. Pray persistently. Jesus is the model spiritual athlete in this sense. He is the picture of triumph over these situations. And again, I've said this three times because I was so proud of this point. He answers his prayer by sending him the angel. The answer to his prayer was the strength to be persistent in prayer. 
unlike the disciples who are fast asleep. The second part of this, and we wrap up, align with God's why while you wait. What does Jesus say? Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. That's his unapologetic, self-centered prayer. And I mean that in the healthiest way. This is his desire of his heart. Take, if it's your will, but your will be done, not mine. Jesus begins and ends his prayer by aligning with the will of the Father. And we could do nothing better in prayer than to do that. Say what we want, but recognize that God has a mission and plan, and our prayer and ourselves need to come in accordance with that, just as Jesus taught us to do in the Lord's Prayer. What does it mean to align ourselves while we wait? I think it means this, to do the work and practices we are called to do, whatever the outcome of our prayer. That there's a lot of other things that we can be doing, primarily loving God with our whole self and loving our neighbor as ourself. This is aligning ourselves with the why of God. So spending time in our spiritual practices, in our tradition we call them the means of grace, and, and they are exactly for this, for waiting for God to work in our life. So we read our scriptures, we pray, we fast, we come to worship, we sing, we take communion. These are the formal practices in uh, uh, ways in which we, we love God with our whole self. There's lots of other ways. And we love our neighbor as ourselves. We continue to serve where we are called. Continue to use our influence for Jesus. This is how we align ourselves with the why of God while we wait. Questions? Conclusions? Answers? You have approximately three seconds. Hearing none. With our head, what God wants us to know is that the king has a kingdom mission. With our heart, what Jesus wants us to experience is that he is working while we're waiting. That's the promise that we can experience. That it isn't that we just say it and God forgets it and moves on. That there's a work in, but primarily that work is going to be preparing us for the purpose and plan that Jesus is doing. And in a very general sense, it is to make us more like Jesus. And with our hands, what we are supposed to do is while we wait, we continue to persistently pray as well as align ourselves with the why of God, saying, your will be done. Here's what I want, but your will be done. And in the middle of the, in the clash of that, what we want and what God wants, that is going to be the place where we have the most effective, fruitful, and beneficial prayer time. And here's your spiritual practice, and then we're going to pray. Just one time this week, Be undistractedly present while you wait for something, while you wait. I got all the way to the last slide with a typo. Good grief. Good greet. Um, just resist pulling, you know what I mean? Waiting for your kids at the bus stop or whatever, you're at the grocery store line, whatever it is, just for a minute. Be undistractedly present because we do believe that God is working while we're waiting, that something has happened after the amen. And being present to that for just a moment this week, I think will bring that idea to life for us. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Father. Thank you for this incredibly difficult story of seeing your son in anguish, 
Would it be an example to us about how to pray, how to align ourselves with you, what you're doing while we're waiting? We give you thanks. We pray for your angels to assist us, to strengthen us, to do this thing which comes hard for many of us, to pray more. And in those times of anguish, would your Holy Spirit remind us in a way that's like knocking us over the head to turn to you because we do know and we want in our hearts, we are here, that we're here because we believe that genuinely turning to you in moments of trial and temptation and anguish is how we triumph. But it is so hard for us. It is not our natural inclination. And we need your help to do that. May we be, we, one another in this body, remind one another to turn towards prayer and we'll be praying for each other. But Spirit, we need your help. And may this time of communion give us the spiritual energy to do that. But begin here in a fresh way. That the bread and the juice, these elements in which you promised to meet us in, would they become nourishment for us so that we can continue to have the spiritual strength to turn towards you even against every instinct we have to do so. And we will give you praise. Table Church, will you pray with me the Lord's Prayer? Saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.